studying the book of 1 John, um, five chapters in this letter. Uh, remember, the Apostle John was the one that wrote this. He wrote the Gospel of John, the three epistles, and the book of Revelation. He was the oldest living apostle amongst all of the um, apostles. Um, he lived to be about 100 years old, and uh, they tried to kill him, and they couldn't. God's had his hand on him. He outlived them all. And um, he was a mighty man. He was the, known as the Apostle of Love. And we've been, we saw that uh, he wrote this letter. This is probably the last letter, the last uh, recorded scripture that we have, even though the Bible is not in chronological order. This is probably the last um, piece of scripture, you know, chronologically that we have in the Bible. Um, and if you are an outliner and you like to de- rightly divide the word, you could probably divide First John. And the first two chapters are about being in fellowship with God as light. So the first two chapters have to deal with the light of God. Uh, chapters three and four have to deal with the love of God. And chapter five deals with the life of God. And, you know, if you could sum up the book um, into one into one um, one sentence or why he wrote this book um, John says this he says in verse 3 of chapter 1 that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. So the thing I love most about John is he wasn't a selfish apostle. He wanted everybody to share the same fellowship that he had with the Lord. And that was the purpose of his writings. He he wasn't one of these guys that was trying to keep a... A, a deep secret and was part of a special club. You might have remembered our study a couple of weeks ago. You know, there's a few things that you can spot, you, you can sniff out a cult or a false doctrine. And one of the, one I, I listed two of them. I'm sure there's a couple, couple more, but there's, well, the first thing is the way you can sniff out a cult or false teaching is, is that it is a, it is a religion based on works that you receive your righteousness or your reward for what you do, your works. There's a lot of false religions, a lot of false cults out there today that teach you have to do things um, to earn a certain level in heaven. Um, another way you can sniff out a false teaching or a cult is it's a secret society. And that if you're part, if, if you get you know in the know or you receive more knowledge that you're you go into another level of either spirituality or or kind of, you know, nirvana or whatever, but they try to keep it's you know, the truth or that or whatever that is, it's it's a part of a secret knowledge. And you're a privileged person if you're brought in on the inside. And um, and that's what I love about John here. He's he's not like that. He wants everybody to have the fellowship that he had with the 
with the Father. Amen. So that was the purpose of his writing. Um, we saw last week also um, one of my favorite verses. Um, he, John, he doesn't pull any punches. He basically says, hey, if you say that you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. And we know that um, to, there, there is the sin nature that we received from Adam. All men have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Paul preaches. So there is the sin nature that every human being has received from Adam. Um, and then there is also the result of that sin nature, which is the sin that we commit. Um, so when John says, if we confess our sins, he is face, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. And then verse 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, then we make him a liar. You know, which is true because, you know, if, if a person's going around saying that they have no sin, then why did Jesus go to the cross? It just doesn't make sense. Um, and then in verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, he says, My little children, I write these things unto you that you sin not. So that is a, a great verse to... Because some people think you might have heard a license to sin. Um, you know, I, you might have heard people say, oh, it's hyper grace. It's a grace that means they, can, they don't have to live, you know, a righteous life. Hyper grace. Which I think people that say that probably maybe have their terminology um, a little bit backwards. Because grace is not forgiveness of sin. Mercy is forgiveness of sin. Amen. Grace is the enabling power to live a righteous life before God. That's what grace is. Grace is an enabling power. Mercy is forgiveness of sin. So people always say, I'm saved by grace. That, what does that mean? That doesn't mean I'm, for, I'm saved by forgiveness. No, we're saved by God's enabling power. He took the first step towards sinful man and gave us access to salvation when we did not deserve it. That's called grace, you see. So when somebody says, oh, you know, you're preaching too much grace, brother, they're just going to keep on sinning. Well, actually, no. If you preach grace hard enough, that enabling power to not sin is what will manifest. Amen. And that's when the real gospel, the real, Paul is a, he's a credit to, to having what's called the, the gospel of the grace of God. Yes. You'll see there are different types of gospel in the, in, the, in the Bible. Paul's gospel was known as the gospel of the grace of God. And that was when he was, he was commissioned by Jesus to take it to the Gentiles. Amen. So the gospel of the grace of God, when it is preached in its truest form, it will actually empower the believer to not sin. And that's what John the Apostle is agreeing with here. He's saying, I'm writing these things that we sin not. So, you know, it's just because he said in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. That doesn't mean that, you know... We can just sin, then ask for forgiveness, sin. We can do that because that's what it says. And we've talked about that last week. But that's not the goal of verse 9. 
The goal of verse 9 is verse 1 of chapter 2. I write these things that you sin not. And let me tell you something. If you apply verse 9 long enough in your life, and mercy washes, and mercy washes, and mercy washes, and grace is applied, and grace is applied, you will eventually achieve verse 1. Now, it could go a day, a week, a year. Yeah, you'll fall again. You apply verse 9, and then verse 1 kicks in again. You see what I'm saying? It's like it keeps going. And pretty soon, the victorious life will kick in. I am not... I don't have near the problems that I had today that I had when I first got saved. Do you know what I'm saying? You, have, you, you conquer new territories. You take new lands, and then God calls you to take other lands. It's a fight. It's a battle. It's a struggle. But eventually you take those lands, you know, and then you take more. That's why the, the, the conquest of, of, of Canaan through Joshua is a beautiful parallel of Christian victories in our life. Amen. You know, giants in the land. So anyway, so there we go. We also saw that uh, Jesus was an advocate. He's a great defender. But what makes his advocacy so powerful is not only is he the greatest defense attorney that we have, all right, he is also the propitiation, the Bible calls it. He is the one that paid the price. So, for instance, if I heard an example taught like this, if I got caught speeding in Milford and I went to court and my dad was on the, on the bench, I may be tempted to think that I'm going get, to get maybe not get convicted because my dad or my father's on the bench. But standing there facing the judge, who's my father, he passes the sentence, and I am guilty. But then the father lays aside his robe and comes off the bench and then writes the check for the penalty that I committed. You see, and that's the picture of he paid the price. He executed the sentence, but he also paid the price. And that's what makes his advocacy so beautiful. All right, because we are judged. We are guilty, but he took the price. And that's what the propitiation there means. It actually means um, he is he took the price. Another it's also translated mercy seat in um, in Hebrews. So that's where we left off at, and um, in verse 3 of chapter 2 it says, And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And he that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. All right? So that, that takes care of the people that you know, are out there in the world. You know, Those of you, you guys have family and friends, they say, Oh, I know God, but yet they're out in the clubs every Friday and Saturday night. Drinking, taking drugs, sleeping outside of marriage, doing the things that we know we shouldn't be doing. But they say they know God. Well, according to this, they're lying. They don't know God. Okay, the know there is an experience or a knowledge that comes through an experience or relationship. Okay, they might, they might even believe in God or they may even, you know, 
have heard there is a God, but they don't know God like John is wanting us to know him. The fellowship that John had with the Father, remember, that's what the goal of this book is, to have a fellowship with God. So somebody that's out there doing things in the world and they say they know God, they're deceiving themselves and they're lying. They, they, they're lying to themselves. They're not speaking the truth. Because the way to express a relationship or um, to know God, experience Him, is to keep His commandments, is to do what He's asking us to do. Amen? Amen. Um, verse 5. Whoever keeps His word... In him, verily, is the love of God perfected. Okay, so the word and commandments, they're interchangeable. So whoever keeps or does what the scriptures advise, all right, the love of God is perfected. How many know that when you read your Bible, you love people more? Amen. That's been my experience. I can always tell when I'm getting testy if my Bible's starting to get dust on the top of it. All right. Hereby know we that we are in him. Verse 6. He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he has walked and even as Jesus walked. Jesus walked and talked what he saw the Father doing is what he said. So, you know, if if we're going to abide in him, then we got to do what he does. I mean, that's just obvious. This is just kind of Christianity 101. But it makes sense for today, though, because I, I run into a lot of people that think they can just do whatever they want to do and still call themselves Christian. Okay. And according to the scriptures, that's just not true. Verse 7, look at this. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. In verse 8, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. All right, so it looks like he's kind of contradicting himself. We've got an old commandment and a new commandment, but it is still just the one commandment. What is that? Jesus said he sums up the law in this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen? It's an old commandment. In other words, the the whole Old Testament law was founded on the principle of loving God and loving each other, right? That's what the whole law and the prophets hangs on. It's an old commandment that we know, but then when he says again a new commandment, that word new there, it is a it means refresh, a refreshing. So now that we are born again, It's like the commandment to love has been refreshed in our lives because we now have the Holy Spirit within us and he helps us to love God and love others like we never have before. I love people and I love God since I've become born again that I just didn't have that kind of love before Christ. Amen. We just didn't have it. So that's why he says an old commandment, but it's now a new commandment because now it has been refreshed in our life by the love of God. All right. So it's almost like a reset or a commandment 2.0. You know, you ever get an upgrade on your computer or an upgrade on your car or, you know, this is so this this commandment. It's like an upgrade. Why? Because we now have the power of the spirit and his love to perform it. So that's what he's saying there. And he says, um, so again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past. See that? The darkness that we once walked in is past, and the true light now shines. 
All right. John here in the first two chapters is always talking about walking in the light and not in the darkness. We saw the parallels. Darkness can represent sin, disobedience. It can represent ignorance. It can represent things that are false and not true. All right. Like false doctrine um, and things like that. So so walking in the light, the light represents purity, walking in righteousness, walking in truth. Light reflects truth. Like we saw, you know, if you take something out into the sunlight, you will see every flaw, won't you, in something. Why is that? Because there's nothing as pure as the sun. The sun reveals. And the Christian should want the light to reveal what's in them. I, if I'm wrong, I want the Lord to reveal that in me. That is a character of, of, a, of a pure Christian. We want to be shown what must change. I, I like that. I rejoice in that. I actually don't have a problem anymore since I've been saved. Maybe it goes for you too. It doesn't bother me when people say I have something wrong in my life. I actually rejoice in that because I want to be perfected. Amen. That is my heart's desire is to be perfected, to be, to be, you know, molded and shaped and conformed into the image of Christ. So the light does that. The light shines. And, but look what it says here. He that saith he is in the light and hates his brother. What is he? He is in darkness even until now. So darkness can be what? Hate. If we don't have love, then we're not in light. And so we must not carry, um, you know, hate towards somebody. And if, if, if somebody says they're a Christian and they actually hate people, we got to get back to the fundamentals of Christianity here and figure out what is the deal. Why is, can't that love flow out of you? Now, it doesn't mean that you have to go to and have coffee at Denny's every, every day together. But there, the hate is not Christian. It's not from Christ. And um, if, if, if you want to have the fellowship that John had with Jesus, um, we cannot say that we walk in the light and hate our brother. We're deceiving ourselves. Verse 10. Now he that loves his brother, he abides in the light. And there is no occasion of stumbling in him. Amen. So in verse 11, but he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because that darkness has blinded his eye, his eyes. So in other words, you hear a lot of people say, oh, I just want to know the will of the Lord. I just need direction in my life. I just need to, to have, you know, clarity and I need to be able to see. I need vision. Well, the first place to start with is, is your love. You know, I, I check your relationship levels. Amen. How are they doing? Um, because if you don't have... Um, if you're not walking in love and forgiveness with those around you, the Bible here says that you're stumbling around in darkness. And there's no way that you're going to, uh, to find your way. Verse 12, I write unto you, little children, because, you're, because your sins are forgiven you for whose name, namesake? His namesake. God has not forgiven me 
for my name's sake. God has forgiven the world because he, the Bible says, from the foundations of the world, Christ was crucified. This is a, this is a universal plan that God has established a long time ago before I even got here. Before I even was born, before I even was conceived in sin, or even before I told my first lie, Christ was crucified for my sins. Amen. Before I even came into this place. And the Bible says that the universe, the angels, look at the salvation of God. See, God has a reputation that he is obliged to keep. The Bible says that he confirms his word. He honors his word over his own name. The Lord has spoken salvation into the earth a long time ago. And he honors his word above his name. So... When it says our sins are forgiven, they're forgiven. My sins are forgiven for his reputation's sake. Amen. I, we are the byproduct of God honoring his word. Amen. Isn't that beautiful? And, and because of that, that helps us take our eyes off of our own failures and, and sin consciousness. And, and you hear me preach about this a lot. The key for every Christian victory is to not be thinking about your sin all the time. We must be living in the righteousness of God. Because the Bible says that the righteousness of Jesus has been passed down to each and every one of us. And so we must have our eyes focused on who we are in Christ. And who am I in Christ? I'm the righteousness of God according to Corinthians. Amen. So we may not always feel like it, but we need to apply it by faith. Amen. So in verse 13, it says, I write unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. And I write unto you little children because you have known the father. Verse 14, I have written unto you, saying again, I've written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. And I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. I won't go into that too much tonight because we expounded on that pretty good on Sunday. But we see the different levels of Christianity there. We have children. We have young men. We have fathers. It's not gender based here. It's more relational. It's male and female. Um, There is a there is a there's the fathers. There's the young men and there's the children. And. um, and we cannot forsake the fathers in the faith. Amen. Amen. We must honor the silver hair, the gray hair. The book of Proverbs says the hoary, the hoary head is a crown. And the word hoary there, I don't know why they, why they use that word, but hoary just simply means silver head or gray head. The gray head is a crown of honor, Proverbs tells us. You know, and I see some silver hair here tonight. And you should not, we should not, we shouldn't be embarrassed of it. Because what does that mean? A fool dies young. And in Bible, Proverbs says that too. Foolishness leads someone to an early grave. So you see people that have lived their, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years. It's because God... They have walked in the truths of God and their life has been preserved. Amen. And that's something to value. That's something that young people need to to follow as an example. 
And I, and I believe we're coming into a generation. I want the, the, the voice of the elderly to be rise up like a trumpet because our young people must listen to the wisdom of the aged. I'm not going to stand for this pitiful uh, lie that says, oh, we just need to have, you know, uh, some sharp young guy who's modern and trendy lead us. I don't want to be led by somebody who's 24. I'm sorry. I just don't. I don't mind getting some of their input, but it's not a biblical example. It's just not. The word elder in the Bible, when he says, Titus, go to cities and appoint elders, he was actually talking about go and appoint those who are aged and have experience. That's who should be set over the church, according to the Bible. Praise God. A couple amens on that. Rattling some cages. Okay, I got nothing. I'll just move on. All right now. So here we go. So in verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let's go over to the book of James chapter 4 real fast. James chapter 4, verse 4. It's just um, like a couple. You've got... John, then you got Peter's letters, and then you got James. Moving to the left. James 4, verse 4. And James really, he, he's really rebuking him here in this chapter. It's the rebuke of worldliness. Um, and this is, this is kind of heavy, but it's okay. And we'll just, I think, let's start from verse 1 so we can feel the flow. He says, from whence, from whence come wars and fightings among you? Where do wars and fights come from? Where do they come from? He tells us right here. Come they not hence even of your lust that war in your members? In other words, wars and fights with each other, with people, even whether it be in family, family wars, or national wars, Okay. Either level, wars come from the lusts that come from our own members. So it's the lust of man that causes war. You can try to, they try to try to politicize it all they want. You can, in your family, when we have fights with our family members or whatever, you know, if there's a disagreement about something, most of the time, the disagreement, if you bottle it down, it has to come down to a want. Somebody wants something. And there's a disagreement about whatever it is they want. That's usually what it is. Now, he says, verse 2, you lust and have not. You kill and you desire to have and cannot. You lust and you have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. How powerful is that? They do, we do all these things, you know, and, and all they had to do was ask, God says. Isn't that what Jesus said? And he said, you have not because you ask not. You see, just swallow your pride and ask, may I please have that? But no, we'd rather kill somebody or take somebody out or, you know, start a war, start a fight. And basically all he's saying is, is all she had to do was just ask. It's very simple. Verse 3, you ask 
You ask and receive not because you ask amiss. Ooh, that's powerful. In other words, your asking is off target. You ask that you may consume it upon your own lusts. All right, so Eve, so one of the problems with the asking there is, is they're asking for their own gain. And that's not good. Verse 4, you adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is an enmity with God. Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. <coughs> That's powerful words there. Amen. Now, that is a different world when Jesus said, For God so loved the whole world. Now, the Greek word world is cosmos, but cosmos can be used in a world system or it can be applied towards humanity. John 3.16, for God so loved humanity. Amen. All right, that he, that he gave his only begotten son. The, the system here, there is that this when it says, he's not saying if you're a friendship with humanity, you're an enemy of God. Well, that's contrary to God's thought towards humanity. We know God loves humanity. Here he's talking about the system. The world system. And when we talk about a system, we're talking about a system of government, a system of education, a system of religion, a system of entertainment, a system of, um, you know, the different things that control the way the world is governed in, in how society functions without, apart from God. Okay, because and this started way back did in the book of Genesis when they built the Tower of Babel. And any cosmos system that is anti-God, that is against God, says, "Let what, is the, what does it say? Let us, let us do this apart from God. That's, what, that's the voice of Lucifer from the beginning. Lucifer always said, I will ascend and be like the Most High. So a cosmos system, a system that God hates, is a system of the world that is opposed to God and wants to build something without God, not giving him the glory, but taking the glory for themselves. And you can see that all over the world, can't we? We can see that on our planet. And I'll tell you what, as we grow closer and closer for the Lord's return, it's getting stronger. It's getting stronger, man. You know, I mean, it's crazy what people deal with. But James is very punchy. He's clear. He says, if you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of God. And that word friendship there is the word phileo. And it's a, it's a common bond. It's a brotherly love. It's a, where you share things in common. And um, we're not to have it. And so back to First John here. So if he says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And we see, these, we see Satan working on these three things through the Bible. He tempted Adam with it, and he also tempted Jesus with it. If you, um, you can put a little reference in your Bible of Genesis 3, 6 and Matthew chapter 4. Now you've heard me talk about Eve and the serpent in chapter 3 long enough, but I do want to look at Matthew 4 for a minute tonight. Matthew chapter 4. 
If you'll go with me over to Matthew chapter 4, say amen when you're there. Matthew chapter 4. So we're talking about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All right. Matthew chapter 4. Starting at verse 1, it says, Jesus was led up of the what? The Spirit. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. All right? So the Spirit wasn't doing the temptation. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. The devil tempted. It says, I think it's in James, it says, Let no man say that when he is tempted, he is tempted of God. God tempts nobody. God cannot tempt because in him is no darkness no, no evil is in God. He cannot tempt. All right? He, the Spirit can lead the devil tempted. Amen? That's very clear here in the Scriptures. Um, and then it says he fasted, and um, he was hungry. And verse 3 says, Then the tempter came, and he said, Command these stones to be made into bread, verse 3. But he answered and said, It is written... That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the first thing he tempted him with was the lust of the flesh to fill his belly, his physical appetite. You know, Proverbs warns against three main physical appetites that every human being goes through. The appetite for food and drink, the appetite for sleep, and the appetite for sex. All right, or sexual relation, I guess is a better way to put it. Um, sexual relationships. Those three appetites are the physical appetites of, of man and woman. And Proverbs teaches us how to overcome those. Some people have it, you know, have struggle in different areas, but you'll find that the lust of the flesh is in food and drink, in your sleep, and in your sexual relations. All right, here, Jesus, at the core of it, you strip all those things down, you know, and at the end of the day, it comes down to bread and water, doesn't it? And, um, and Jesus went 40 days without bread. That's a miracle. I don't know how he did it. I don't think I could go four days without a cheeseburger. I'm just kidding. I'm just teasing. Now, look, but he was tempted in the lust of the flesh. But what did he use? He used the word of God, didn't he? He said, man shall not live by bread alone. In other words, we have a spirit. We're, we have a spirit. We are a spirit. We have a soul. We live in a body. We are a spirit. We have a soul. We live in a body. The bread is for the body. This body is not in charge. We may feel hungry, but we are a spirit. And the spirit needs the Bible more than it does a piece of bread. It does. Amen? Amen. And that's what he's saying. So that's the way we get over the lust of the flesh. So a good way to break the lust of the flesh in our life is to have a good fast. Start reading the Bible. It says, And then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Verse 5. And he said... If you be the son of God, cast yourself down, for it is written that he shall give the angels charge concerning thee. 
and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time you dash your foot against a stone. So the devil tried to use scripture on them. You know, just like Jesus used scripture on the devil. The devil knows the Bible. He just don't believe it. So he tried to use the Bible in a cunning way to try to trip Jesus up. But what did he say? If you be the son of God. So he tried to challenge Jesus in who he was. He tried to attack and use the pride of life to get Jesus to do something here. And it says right here, verse 7. It is written that you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. So he used the word there. He used the word to, to, to squash pride. And if anybody ever tries to challenge you about who you are or what your job is or what your title is, you need to rest in the Lord God. He will defend you. You need to rest in his word. We're not, our job is not to prove ourselves. The minute you f- start getting into an avenue where, oh, I just gotta, I gotta show them. I gotta show them what God has, God has got me. I got gifts. I got gifts, man. I got ministry. I gotta show them. I gotta show them. You start getting into that area and you're moving outside of, you know, the realms of where you're supposed to be in the Holy Ghost. Um, and so, it is, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord thy God. An interesting thing, there's only one place in the Bible where the Lord says, tempt me. And that's in giving. He says, test. Actually, not tempt, test. Test the Lord and see that I, not, I will not uh, pour out a blessing. Verse 8, again, the devil takes him up into a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. So he shows them the systems of the world. And he look what he says in verse 9. And he said unto them, All these things will I give thee if you will fall down and worship me. So he was tested with the lust of the eyes, the beauty of the kingdom, the glitter and the gold, and just the, the brilliance of it all, the shiny things. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord thy God, and him and him only shall you serve. All right, so even Jesus was tempted on these three planes. Pride of life, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Eve was tempted in these things as well. The Bible says she saw the apple, that it was pleasing, and that it was good for food, and that it would make one wise. All right. So my point is this, gang. The devil's only got three plays in his playbook. Amen. You know, we're about ready to have Super Bowl, you know, and he's only got a run up the middle, a bootleg to the right and a post pattern to the left. And that's it. You know, he's only got three plays in his playbook. And every time he tries to tempt us and every time he tries to get us outside of our dominion, it's always along the realms of these three things. And that's my point. But here's the thing. Here's, the, here's how we master it. Where did it say these things dwell at? According to 1 John. 1 John says, For all that is in the world, 
is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So these things dwell in the world. And as long as, as if we have too much contact with the world or the love of the world is in us, we will have to fight and always be, you know, these things will always be trying to get a hold of us. But if we don't love the world, if we don't have an affection for the world, then these things will not be, um, they will not be a part of it. Now, the thing also that he says here, the reason why we must not set our affections on the world is in verse 17. I'm back in 1 John chapter 2. Is It says here in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17, the world passes away. And so does its lust thereof. But he that does the will of God abides forever. So everything that these people are chasing after, like I was saying on Sunday, you know, all the people that they be, they're lured away for the desire in these things. And, and they're just like a mirage out in the desert because they go after them and they get there and they realize there's nothing there. And all the people that told them that's what they need, they're not there either. Once they get their fill, once they've used the used you and, and gotten their what they needed out of you, they're not around. It's like the prodigal. You know, the prodigal, when he took the father's inheritance, he went out. Once all of his money was around, where was his friends? Where was his friends when he was in the pig pen? Where were they? They were gone. I experienced that my own self in the world. When I was in the world, when I had money, I had friends. When I didn't have money, I didn't have anybody but my family. You know, you seem like your family was all, you always wanted your family when you were broke. You never wanted your family when you had money. Crazy. All right, so that's the deal there. So we know the world is a deceiver. And boy, it's this, the conquering the desire for the world, that's a hard one, man. That is a really, that is a hard, that was a hard lesson for me to learn as a Christian. You know, it went, but once I conquered that, once I realized that the world had nothing for me, man. Living for Jesus was a lot easier. All right, almost finished here. Verse 18. Now, little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. All right, or the last days. (laughs) So that word Antichrist, that's a word sometimes that the church, ooh, Antichrist, oh, getting heavy on me. Antichrist is revealed in the scriptures in three ways. The first way and probably the most familiar way is the way Antichrist is revealed in the book of Revelation. Amen. The same person that wrote this book wrote Revelation. And that's Antichrist that is going to come, that is going to be, the devil incarnate in flesh. All right? Jesus took on flesh. The devil will take on flesh. The Antichrist will be revealed. He will be this world leader that we see in the book of Revelation. All right? That's the Antichrist. All right? Now, he's not going to come and say, Hey, everybody, I'm the Antichrist. You know, no, it won't be that way. Scripture reveals him as the Antichrist. Why? Because what does anti mean? Against, against the anointed one. The Antichrist will be against the anointed one and his people, all right? So 
that's what he will be. Um, I think he, I think he's going to be really charismatic, really cunning, smooth. You know, I said one time, you know, we always got Fox and CNN fighting each other about the president, don't we? You know, when when the Democrats in the CNN are singing his praises and the re- Fox is tearing them down, and now that we got a Republican in, the Fox is singing his praises and CNN are tearing them down. You know, but I got a feeling when the Antichrist comes on the scene, both CNN and Fox will be singing his praises. I just think that everybody is going to be thinking this guy is amazing. You know, that's why the tension is being set up at the moment. There's this tension. And there's this back and forth that, that when he does come on the scene, it's going to be a lot easier to just create this peace and this and this wonderful, oh, this this is the guy we've been waiting for. Everybody loves him, you know. So that's the that's the first way. The second antichrist um, that he's talking about is the um, is the, what's called the spirit of antichrist. All right. There's a spirit of Antichrist. And uh, we learned about that when we studied Thessalonians. And it says the spirit of Antichrist now works. All right. There is an Antichrist spirit that work that is working in the world. But the Antichrist is not revealed. All right. There's an anti anointing that is in the world today. We know that we can see that. There is a spirit that is working against the church. It's working against God. It's that spirit of Antichrist that was at the Tower of Babel. Um, It was at the spirit of Antichrist that Haman was operating on during Mordecai and Esther's time. That was a spirit of Antichrist. I believe it was a spirit of Antichrist that was working in Hitler during the Holocaust. There was a spirit of Antichrist that was working in Stalin when he excommunicated all those Jews. You know, I heard a report that Stalin actually killed more Jews than Hitler did. But for some reason, we tend to overlook that and always talk about Hitler. But Stalin, he killed many Jews, much more. Well, what were they doing? Well, the devil, like I said, he reads the Bible God has promised that the Messiah would come to rule and reign in Jerusalem. That he would rule and reign over his people. So the Antichrist spirit says, well, if I can wipe out the people, he'll have nobody to rule over. You see, all through history, he has always tried to thwart God's plan. Because he wants to make God look like a liar. Like God doesn't keep his word. He's been accusing God of that he doesn't keep his word from the beginning. Hath God said. Did God really say that? Always trying to cast doubt on the word. If he can cast doubt on God's promises to Israel and to the promised land, he tries to he tries to mess up the land. He tries to mess up the people. He tried to mess up the people all through Genesis, like Genesis six, when it says the angels came down and married the sons of men. He tried to he tried to poison the race of the the Messiah's line as he was going to come down. He's always been trying to mess up the line of the Messiah. Why? Because he knows that the Messiah, 
will one day judge him. He will be judged. Jesus already said he's been judged. He knows he's judged. He knows his time has come. But he keeps trying to deceive and keeps trying to mess things up. So the spirit of Antichrist has been at work. It worked during, you know, way back in Haman's time, Hitler's time. It's at work even now, the spirit of Antichrist. So that's the second way that Antichrist is used in Scripture. And then the third way Antichrist is used in the Scripture is here in our text here, where he says, Even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. And the Antichrist that the Apostle John is referring to here is false teachers. False teachers. And he says, in the last day, false teachers will arise. Jesus said that. Paul said that. The Apostle John said that. False teaching is a sign of the last days. And we have many false religions that have been established under false teaching. Universalism. In the 1800s, they begin to pull apart the scriptures. And they begin to question whether it was the actual real revelation of God. Was it the Bible? Could we trust the Bible? What they call higher criticism, where they begin to come in and pick apart the very words of God. We think they have this thing called the Jesus Convention, where they begin to pull apart and say, Jesus We don't think he said that. And they'll put a line through the text. And we think he might have said that. And they question the word of God. In the 1800s, when higher criticism came, it came on on the winds of the Enlightenment movement where men begin to embrace theories like Darwinism. And the root of all of these theories was based on men wanting to go after his own God. Amen. Which was himself. And so they would come up with these different things. And so they begin to pick apart. And then newer translations came out of the midst of this. And people begin to question, does God say this? God didn't say that. Universalism movement, when they begin to question the deity of Jesus, found in 1 John where it says that these three are in one. When they begin to question that and take it out of the, and they took it out of the Revised Standard Version, they no longer had these three are one. They took that out and and the universalism took off. And from that branch of, of, the, of the Trinity not being found in the Bible, we have doctrines of Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormonism and all these different religions all spewed out of the fact that they no longer embrace the doctrine of Jesus Christ being God. And so these false doctrines, these antichrist spirit, these teachers that teach against Christ as deity. And that's what John is talking about here. And he dealt with this early in the church, early in the first century of the church. You know, you've heard me talk about the Gnostics, the Gnosticism, that materialism is evil. They never thought that Jesus was God or that Jesus was even a human being and could put on flesh because they thought flesh was evil. So they either said Jesus wasn't God he, or he didn't have a body, that he was just a phantom. And this is totally, it totally nullifies why Jesus had to come in a body. 
He had to come in a body. He had to take on sinful flesh or he couldn't be a propitiation for our sin. He could not effectively take the penalty of sin if he did not have a human body. So if Jesus didn't have a human body, I still am in my sin. And where is my confidence? Well, I might as well just party with the rest of them. But Jesus did come in a body. Amen. He was God come in flesh. And your modern translations, man, they, they, they take this is the mystery of God. God come in flesh. They totally remove that. Because I'll tell you what, this church that's trying to be built right now, this universal church that's trying to coexist with all the different religions, they don't want to hear that Jesus is God. They don't want to hear that Jesus is the only way. They don't want to hear that Jesus came in a body, that he was born of a virgin. He died for our sins. He hung on a cross as a body and he rose from the dead. They don't want to hear this kind of stuff because it doesn't match all their teachings. And so this universal church that is being built around us, this antichrist that he says here, it is, it, 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 it's incorporating all these different religions. And what they're doing is they're little by little, they're, they're chipping away at the scriptures and they're taking out all the stuff that pertains to Jesus' deity. And it's, it's, it's happening right before our eyes. And we are not asleep in the light, amen? But there's a lot of people out there that are just totally just letting it wash over them. Wash over them as the powerful words of Scripture about the deity of Jesus Christ is being taken out from among them. And I'm not going to stand for it. That's why I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna study the, the, the this Bible that I have in my hand and uh, and I'm gonna and I'm gonna hang on to it and they can pry it out of my dead cold fingers. That's what I say. They can pry it out of my dead cold fingers because I know one day and I'm sorry I got to preach on me a little bit, but there was a man who was burnt to a stake because of this word right here, and he said, "Lord, open the king's eyes. Open the king's eyes." And the next king was King James, and we got the King James Bible out of that. This is an answer to a martyr's prayer, this Bible I have in my hand. And it has shook the nations. Amen. And when they made this Bible, they weren't in a conference room saying, oh, we don't think Jesus said that, or oh, we don't think Jesus said that. It's the preserved Word of God that's been passed down from generation to generation, and I have confidence. And amen. I don't care what any critic says. I don't care. I, like Moody said, I know the Bible's inspired because it inspires me. I'm telling you, this Bible right here, when I read it, it does something to me that no other text I've ever read does. It's living. It's quick. It's powerful. It will change you. Don't fall for this rubbish that HarperCollins is trying to shove down your throat. HarperCollins owns Zondervan now. HarperCollins owns Hendrickson. All the Bible publishers that we grew up with, the secular media own them now. It's terrible. You think they want us to know that Jesus Christ is God? No, they don't. And pretty soon they're going to wipe it out. They're already trying to get rid of different portions of the King James Bible in Canada, trying to say that this is illegal literature in in, in Canada. That it's hateful literature and they're trying to make it illegal. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. I'll tell you what. I don't know why I'm going this way. I feel the passion. Bruno, I'll die for this Bible right here. 
I literally can say I, I will I would go to a I will go to a burning stake for this scripture. But some of that trash that that secular meat is trying to push down my hands, I wouldn't die for that. And you know why? Because them translators wouldn't die for that. Them translators wouldn't die for that. They're just doing it for the money. A lot of them don't even love God. They're just doing it because they have a job. But I'm telling you, man, the, the William Tyndale, he died for this scripture. He was burnt to the stake. Whitecliffe, he died for this. He died for this Bible. And many more, many more people died for this Bible. Well, hallelujah. So that's the Antichrists, the false teachers. The people are trying to just rip the word of God out of our hand and teach something differently. That's what John's talking about here. In verse 19, he says, they, look at this. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. So that's what he's saying. There's a people, there's a group. They were with us in fellowship, but they've gone out. And the very fact that they've gone out proved that they were never of us. Amen. And that's what the great apostasy is going to be about. The great apostasy is basically just verse 19 in action. Where people are going to fall away from God. And and the fact that they fell away means that they never were of God. Because this is what I do know about God. He is faithful to perform that which he started. He is able to bring it to completion, Philippians tells us. He who has started a good work in you is faithful. Amen. So this is my... My, my profession is, if he started it in me, he sure is able to finish it. Amen? And so the fact that these people didn't finish it shows that he never started it. Praise God. And so we don't need to actually be, you know, worried about that kind of stuff. You know, and I know that he is going to finish it. Because the word of God is powerful, man. So, and it's scary sometimes when you think, because there's a lot of fakers in church. And it's like, man of God, you know, what? why are these guys even come to the church? If You know, why would somebody stop doing this stuff? Why would they even kind of want to be in church if they weren't actually of God? Because I'm thinking if, if I wasn't of God, I wouldn't want to be hanging out in church. I'd be wanting to be down at the bar or wherever, you know. I'd be in, but there are people, I don't know why, but there are people that are in church who are not of God. And that's the reality. And so, uh, you know, Paul, Jesus talked about that in the parables and everything. So, but what we will find out, they weren't of us. And my closing thought is this. We need fellowship. And we need the apostles' doctrine. It says in the early church, when the early church was on fire, they submitted themselves to the apostles' doctrine. They met from house to house. And they also went to the temple. I see a model there for a congregational worship in the temple. And I see a model for a small group house to house. We need both. Some of you in this room, you've got friends that are hurt from church. And they're out there doing their own thing. They're trying to have these little small groups, but they're not connected to anybody. The, 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 the thing that's keeping them connected is their hurt, not their love. John just told us, we must, we must, 
Love is what must bind us together here. We can't be bound together because we're hurt. That's not going to last. That's not going to accomplish anything. So what we got to do is, is we've got to forgive. We've got to get over hurt. We got to get over pain. We've got to walk in love. We got to walk in light. We can't walk in pain and hurt and darkness because that's not real fellowship. So you got these people out there that are meeting in homes because they're hurt. It's not light, according to John. It's not. They may mean well and they're good meaning well, but we we can't have that. And so, you know, so it's almost like you they got half of it right. You know, you need. I believe in small groups. I believe in meeting in homes. I think it's great. I was talking to Dan when Dan went through that thing that Eastgate went through. You know, they were hurt for a moment. They didn't know what to do. And, you know, I think this is pretty good when the when people get hurt or churches divide or split or they 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 have division over stupid stuff like we were reading about earlier. What caused the war? Want. What caused that division at it, it, uh, Fellowship of Praise? And what was it called? Uh, love and faith is what it was called later. What caused that? Want. You can call it what you want, but at the end of the day, what causes church division and splits? Want. Why do people go to war? Because of lust. Amen. Lust. That's why we have church division and splits, because of lusts. That's the bottom line. You can say whatever you want. It all comes down to, to lusts. And so, you know, so people get hurt. Church gets divided. It's interesting, though, there's a there's a raw desire to be with each other. So, you know, Dan was sharing with me, you know, when they had that split at love and faith, they all went and they, they met in the home for a little bit. But it was just a temporary thing, though. It, it, it was like it was like a Band-Aid. It was like, you know, kind of, you know, when the when the building's on fire, you all run out. And in school, they all have you congregate into a to a place, don't they? You all meet at one the spot where everybody's got to meet. Now, but you can't stay there. It was good for a season, but then, you know, the Holy Spirit speaks and you've got to get, you got to get locked back into the body, man. You got to get locked back into the apostles' doctrine. You got to get locked back into the fellowship of love, real love. You can't stay out there in the land of hurt. It's just not going to last, amen? And so if you know people that are like this, you continue to love on them and try to bring them, you know, they don't have to go to this church. But they just, they just have to be, they got, I don't want to hear that profession anymore of, oh, we're just meeting in a home group because, you know, we've been hurt. Mm-hmm. And that's just not, that's just not on. You know, you need to get, you need to get forgiveness, get over it, go to those that hurt you, forgive them, make your peace, make your peace right with them and get in fellowship somewhere. That's what they need to do. That's the, that's how they're going to grow. Praise God. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, I love you guys. I hope you got something out of that. We finished in verse 19. We're moving through this book at a rapid pace. Amen. Father, thank you for the Bible. We love you guys. See you Sunday.